2: Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Mark Grimaldi. Uh, He's the author of a new book called The Money Compass, Where Your Money Went and How to Get It Back. He also runs a newsletter service uh, and he tracks various sectors. It's called the Sector Navigator Newsletter. Welcome to the show, Mark.
3: Thank you, Jordan. Happy to be here. I've been looking forward to this and uh, been a big fan for many, many years.
2: So let's just start with your background a little bit and kind of tell people uh, your uh, history in investing and what wanted to make you uh, write this book about The Money Compass.
3: Sure. Uh started out, my, my uh, education is in economics, degree in economics back all the way back in uh, 1985 with a minor in political science. Uh, I am a political science junkie. I love to watch politics. And as my career developed and, and matured, I noticed that there was a big connection between what's going on in uh, Washington and what's going on in Wall Street. And I would happen—I would say that over the last maybe ten to fifteen years, I've really developed a knack for looking at what's going on, the cues that are giving us in D.C. versus the cues that they're giving us from uh, from Wall Street, and how one is reacting to the other. And uh, I've been in this business since uh, 1986, and now. Uh, really what, what led me to, to, to write this book and what started me thinking about this book were some of the events that happened you know, right after uh, the uh, 2000 election where it was uh, contested for 36 days. And I do talk about one of the chapters in the book about everything that happened leading up to that election and what happened after that election, after the 36 days where it took the Supreme Court to finally declare the winner. And, Jordan, you'd be surprised exactly what the Federal Reserve was doing or not doing during that time, which, to me, uh, put everything in motion to what happened in 2008 and really to uh, where we are today.
2: All right, well, we'll get into the details of the whole thing in the book. Talk a little bit about your newsletter as well, uh, which is called The Sector Navigator. Uh, Tell me how that works and what kind of a track record do you have on
3: it? Yeah, I would be happy to talk about that. This is a newsletter that was created back in 2002, and actually, I took it over in the, the middle of 2004. So my track record with the newsletter goes back uh, to July 1st of 2004. I just want to be clear with that, which is nine and a half years. And basically, it's a newsletter that's designed to look at different sectors of the economy as to which, which sector is doing better. It, it's, not a buy and, it's not a buy and hold, but it's also not a market timing newsletter because it is fully invested at all times. And what we have is a mathematical formula that we use to identify which sectors are showing the most momentum, whether it's consumer products, retailing, leisure, healthcare. You know, we do slice the pie very thin. And each month we'll send out a buy signal and a sell signal to our readers that tells you on this date, buy this and sell this. And uh, it's we've been doing that for many, many years, uh, Jordan, as you know. And in terms of our track record, we, we always like to lean on a third party to actually uh, tell us what our track record is. In the newsletter, it does tell, us, tell you it, have, it has a very detailed track record each year and each month. Uh, but I'd rather have an independent agency look at our track record and have them determine what, how well we've done. And we just received the January uh, issue of the Holbert Financial Digest and Mark Colbert does a great job, and he's kind of the uh, newsletter that tracks newsletters. Uh, and uh, I'm sure a lot of you risk listeners have heard of Mark Colbert because he's on CNBC yep. all the time. And through the end of December 2013, he ranks the Sector Navigator number two uh, based on a risk-adjusted return over the last 10 years. Uh, and there's 42 newsletters in, our cate- in the category and he ranks the sector navigator number two over the last ten years, and again, full disclosure. Uh, I am personally responsible for that for the last nine and a half years. So there was six months at the very beginning, Jordan that uh, another publisher was at the helm. but I think most uh, listeners would agree nine and a half is, is a pretty good uh, nine and a half years out of the last ten is a pretty good indication of what we can do.
2: And the return over that period was an unadjusted 9.3%. That's an average annual return, is that right?
3: That is correct. Over the last 10 years, the, uh, the unadjusted uh, gain is 9.3%, and if you compare that to the S&P, I think it looks pretty, pretty darn good.
2: Uh, well, the Wilshire they have was an 8% over the same period, that Wilshire 5000.
3: Correct, correct.
2: So, and, right, But this is, is risk-adjusted. How, is, how are you doing uh, on a risk-adjusted basis doing so well? Because you would think you're taking a lot of risks by moving from one sector to another all the time.
3: You know, a lot of my re- we get a lot of emails that say that because you know, they, we get emails that say, Mark, you're fully ingested, so you, uh, I don't understand why you're, not ta- why you're not exposed to more risk than you are. And, and the reason is because what we're doing is actually buying in sectors that are showing growth potential. It doesn't mean they're at the bottom. It doesn't mean they're at the top. It means that they're breaking out among their peers, so we try to always be riding the, the the hot hand, as everyone knows. There's no guarantees in, in the investment industry, but we seem to, it. What the math is designed to do is always look for the hot hand, something that's breaking out above its peers. Uh, and basically, if you look at the Holbert report, Mark, which I know, uh, Jordan, which I know you have there, right? You'll see he has a risk at uh, 68.8 which you can look at the, compare that to a beta. So over the last 10 years, the Wilshire 5,000 is 8%. This newsletter is 9.3%. we are taking about 70% as much risk as the market.
2: And you're basically doing relative strength. Is that the idea? You're saying something that's relatively doing better than others? That's correct. That's correct. I mean, a it's lot right. of people look at relative strength. What is it that you do that's made you so much better in looking at relative strength than all the other people who are looking at relative strength?
3: Well, I don't know what we're doing better, but what I could tell you in, in terms of how we do things is we have eight uh, specific criteria that we look at. And when we do this, we have, it, we're not using information that most people can get on, on, in terms of a mutual fund, and ETF, so we have to spend a lot of money to, to secure all the data. And when we do crunch the numbers and we put it all through it, in terms of the relative strength, it, what it does is it, it, it'll rank you on a scale. And the higher the ranking, the obviously, the more attractive the, uh, the holding is. But it also takes into account standard deviation. It takes into account yield. It takes into account beta and sharp ratio. And just mixes these up in, into a pie, if you will. And what it does is it does show you each month, because we do, we do uh, re-rank the numbers once a month, and each month it will show you which sectors are trending up and which sectors are trending down. And for the newsletter, I keep it really simple, Jordan, because I'm a very simple guy, what I do is, I, for the mutual fund side, is I just take the top five sectors, and that's it. You know what I mean? We, we could run math and say, well, what if I held the top ten or the top three? Uh, I just found, uh, from doing this many, many years, that most of the readers are comfortable holding five different holdings. So we take the top five. And if one drops out of the top five, we'll send an email out and say, we re-rank the numbers, it's time to sell this and buy that. And our readers who have followed this each month, you know, have been very, very happy with the returns.
2: So you're doing it only once a month, or during the month? If something breaks, you'll uh, something breaks down, it loses relative strength. You'll send out a notice during the month.
3: Well, that is a great question. We have had periods in 2002, the other, the old publisher, and I personally started in 2008 and 2009 where we issued an alert to readers that we're actually going to re-rank the, uh, the sectors twice a month because at that time, Jordan, the markets were so crazy, I wanted to get a quicker return on the numbers. So at that point, we did it twice a month. Uh, we did it twice a month probably for about 12 months, and then we went back to once a month. So if I feel that the markets are, are very unstable, we may redo the numbers twice a month and report that to our readers. But typically, it is once a month.
2: So you do this in three ways. The first one is using ProFunds and RIDEX sector funds. Some of those are, are regular ones, some are inverse, is that right? So if the market's going down, you can go into the inverse, RIDEX or ProFunds, pro is
3: that right? That's 100% correct, yes.
2: So have, have you done that, like in 2008 when things are going down, when you win the inverse funds a lot?
3: I don't want to use the word a lot, Jordan, but we were in inverse funds. And if, if you look at our 2008 performance, which I'm extremely proud about, Everyone on the call probably knows that, you know, the markets were not that great in 2008, lost 35 to 40%, depending on which index you're looking at. Uh, According to uh, our calculations in 2008, the ProFund RIDEX model lost 1.79%. So you must have had some in the index funds to to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, I (laughs) mean, that, that year was just you know, legendary for us. I mean, when the markets got hammered, we didn't.
2: And then you also have ETF sectors. So these are um, publicly traded ETFs which you buy like stocks. They're not funds. And so you have a bunch of different sectors, some broad-based like uh, S&P 500 and some uh, more narrowly based different industries. How has that worked out?
3: Yeah, I I would have to say most of them are very uh, specific. You know, I like to tell my readers in terms of uh, how to look at the ETFs, you know, if you you invest in a mutual fund, it's like investing in a mall. You know, if you invest in in an ETF, it's not only investing in the mall or investing in the individual store. An ETF is almost like investing in an individual product on one shelf in one store. So it, it just isolates, you know, something. So you really need to know what you're doing to get into ETFs because, like you said, there are just generic ETFs that invest in market and indexes, but most of them are designed to just pick a different sector, a specific sector in the economy, and they slice it down into a really thin pie. I'm extremely proud of our ETF uh, track record uh, because, number one, it's over 10 years old, which I've been responsible for nine and a half, and it's not hypothetical. This is the actual track record. We have every issue that we've ever published. And most of them we just keep on the website so if people can go back and see, you know, what did he do in 2008? What did he do in 2009 or 2010? And every issue, Jordan, is kept there on an archive so people can see exactly, you know, what we were doing. We are big fans of ETFs. So we think ETFs are here to stay. Uh, the big problem in the industry is most ETF track records that go back as long as ours is just a hypothetical track record. Mm-hmm. You you will not find anywhere on newsletter that we say this is a hypothetical track record because it isn't. It's a it's an actual living breathing track record that has been around that long, and uh, we love using iShares. I mean, pro shares are very good, uh, power shares are very good, but we try to look for the ETFs to have the lowest expenses, and the most important thing is many ETFs are very thinly traded. So uh, an investor needs to be really careful. If you look in an ETF and you pull it up and you see they only trade a few thousand shares a day, you may want to just look at a different ETF, maybe in the same asset class. You know, for for example, do, do you
2: um, do you move them if if you come out with a recommendation to buy an ETF? Is there a, such a surge of volume that the, it moves the ETF, and if it's suddenly traded, that kind of disrupts things?
3: What I try to do is when we reshuffle the deck, the answer to your question is yes, we do have a tendency to move it. And when I sh- reshuffle the deck, if an ETF pops to the top that doesn't have the volume that I think it needs to have, I'll go down to the next one. I'll just bypass that because, because you, you can cause, uh, you know, it can cause a problem, not, not for the markets. I don't care about the markets, but it can cause a problem for my readers. And that's, that's my biggest concern. Yeah. So we do look at that because there's a lot of ETFs that just don't have the volume and just don't have the market cap to, to generate you know, the the type of volume that I need you know, for a newsletter of this caliber.
2: For liquidity. Very good. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Mark Grimaldi. He's the author of The Money Compass, Where Your Money Went and How to Get It Back. He also runs the newsletter Sector Navigator. You can find out more about him at his website, which is GrimaldiEconomics.com. We'll be back after this.
4: We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
0: If you want to know about investing in emerging and frontier markets, or if you have experience in this field but still need to know more, Tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham. Gavin explores news, current trends, and insights about both categories of investing. His guest experts, along with his own knowledge, will help you stay above the line when it comes to growth potential, whether in funds or equities. He will look at what to invest in and avoid. Tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m.
2: Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Mark Grimaldi. Uh, He's the author of a new book called The Money Compass, Where Your Money Went and How to Get It Back. He also runs a newsletter service uh, called the Sector Navigator Newsletter. Uh, And welcome back to the show, Mark.
3: Thank you, Jordan. We
2: talked about about the ETFs and we talked about the ProShares uh, RIDEX funds. You also pick uh, Fidelity Select Funds. So so, what is the advantage of using Fidelity over the uh, the ETFs or the, uh, the RideX Pro Funds?
3: You know what, John? I don't know if there is an advantage. It, what, 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 the reason we use the Fidelity is because Fidelity is, is a great company that has a wide range of select funds that are available. And it's more important to us that we have a mutual fund that you can buy and sell free of charge within 30 days, which the RideX Pro Funds allow you to do and the Fidelity Select allow you to do. You know, there's no front end, there's no back end in any of these funds. So when when we did our research many, many years ago, we realized that Fidelity does have the wide range of funds that we need, all the asset classes that we need, and that the readers can go in and out of the funds, as long as they hold them for 30 days, which typically that's not a problem. Uh, and Fidelity just does a great job of, of providing that. But one thing I didn't mention before the uh, break is, uh for, for about the last two years, we've been, I've been working with my uh, patent attorney, and we looked at the math that we have, and we saw the success of it, and we, and we decided to actually file a patent with the U.S. Patent Office with the math to have it patent pending. And after about a year and a half of going back with them, we were able to demonstrate to the U.S. Patent Office that the math that we use in selecting sectors, it is different, it is unique, and needs to be protected. So uh, last October, we were issued a patent-pending status. It doesn't mean the patent is granted. It doesn't mean it will ever be granted. But as you know, there's a lot of hurdles you have to reach just to get to that patent-pending status. Very uh, good. Uh, we're very happy about that.
2: So when the uh, computer spits out, uh, buy these ETFs or uh, sell these Fidelity funds, you just take it blindly and that's it? Or do, do you and then put another layer of your intelligence on top of what the computer spits out?
3: Well, with the Fidelity, typically we'll just take the top five unless, Jordan, there's a situation where uh, two of the five are just way too similar. Maybe one's utilities, you know, and, and, you know, or consumer staples, and the other one's consumer, you know, staples plus something. If, if two of the five are just way too close in terms of their asset classes, because like I said, they really slice the pie thin, so if two of the, two of the five are almost identical, it would really be waiting 40% into that. So that we may pull one out and drop to number six. So there is a little tweaking. Everything has to be approved by me or somebody in the firm before we actually send the, uh, alert to our readers. Uh, so we do look at that. And again, on the ETFs, there's a lot more monitoring involved to make sure that the five ETFs are in the holdings, are ETFs that have enough, like you said, liquidity where we could actually put it into the marketplace and not worry about you know distorting the prices one way or another.
2: Tell people how they can subscribe to the newsletter, how much it costs, and a website to get directly to the uh, newsletter.
3: Well, right now, the newsletter uh, is, I think, a couple hundred dollars a year. However, if you go to that GrimaldiEconomics.com and purchase the book at a, at a discount from Amazon, in the book there's a code where you can get this newsletter free for one year. So it's a fantastic offer, and we recommend anybody who does get the book, you can also get this newsletter free of charge. There's a code in there. If you go on the website, you'll actually see uh, it says there's a, a tab about getting the book free subscription. You pop in the code, Jordan. You put in your name, address, and uh, email address. You don't have to give us a charge card. You don't have to give us anything else. Just it, There's no strings attached. Name, address, Email address, boom, you got a free one-year subscription. No strings attached.
2: Very good. All right, terrific. All right, so now I want to get to the book a little bit. Um, so you have a lot of the different uh, historical events that have happened in the last 15 years or so. I just want to go over some of them briefly, and if we can, relate it to what's happening now in the market. So one of the big trends you talk about uh, is what Greenspan did and the growing housing bubble. So what? how did it get out of hand? How is it that Greenspan, who's got – a thousand economists, PhDs, watching every possible number, was so surprised by the housing bubble, and and what's the impact of that today?
3: Well, he says he was surprised. I don't know if I really believe him. If he was surprised, but if if but we, Jordan, we have to take a couple minutes and dig deep into the year two thousand. Most, of, most I know you know, and most of your readers know, the markets hit an all time high in two thousand. Nasdaq hit five thousand, you know, in the in the spring of two thousand, and everything was going great. But then the market started to sell off. In March and April of 2000, and in May of 2000, they started selling off. And and Greenspan was looking at this, and there was a lot of pressure on him at that point to start cutting interest rates because the economy was slowing down. He had the May meeting, he had his next meeting, and he did nothing. Then he found himself in a unique situation where he thought he was going to cut rates right after the November election. And I say, I'm not, I can't read his mind, but I read his book and I've looked at it and I've studied him extensively. He mm-hmm. was indicating that right after the election, he didn't want to seem political, that right after the 2000 election, he would start cutting rates. Lo and behold, we have the election and there's no results. And it went from days to days to weeks to 36 days. And he found himself in a situation where he had the November meeting after the election where... He, he issued basically the same notice that he issued back in October that the, was showing signs of inflation, was showing signs that the economy's getting stronger. Me and most people who most economists looked at that and said, "No, no, no, he's just mailing it in. This, he just rubber stamped that, that bulletin. It, there's no way he could be saying that was still showing signs of inflation, which means growth because demand's exceeding supply.:
2: So you're so saying I, that because of the, the election not being settled, he didn't feel he could make any
3: move one way or the other way. He really would have liked to have. That's my belief, yes. So his so November wh- meeting came and went with no move. Then okay. you know, we got into early December, still nothing. The first week of December, still nothing. Finally, it was decided December 13th, where the uh, U.S. Uh, Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to four in favor of uh, George Bush. And I'm not a political person. It doesn't matter to me who's in Washington. It's, I, I just need to understand what their agenda is. So that was December 13th. He then had a meeting, which nobody talks about, but I I just find this fascinating. He had a meeting on December 18th or 19th, and I talk about this in the book, to welcome President-elect Bush. The meeting was in the White House. There was a photo op. There was pictures. And I remember sitting in my office saying to somebody at the time, he's not cutting rates tomorrow. Because he can't stand in front of this, what this person says, a photo op, and then tomorrow start cutting rates. So, December 19th, the next day, the Fed has a meeting. He doesn't cut rates. And again, Jordan, he just issues the same bulletin, the same minutes, that there's a big risk at this point for inflation meeting demand. Now, by that time, the NASDAQ has lost almost 30, 35%. We're in an environment where the S&P lost 5% the last few weeks, and people are, you know, getting antsy. So the market's lost 35%. He did nothing on December 19th, 2000. Nothing. Mm-hmm. He actually issues that, that, the, that was still at a risk towards inflation. Then the very first business day of 2001, he surprises the market and cuts rates by 50 basis points, from 65 to 6 then he cuts him again in January. And he cuts and cuts and cuts till he gets down to, uh, I believe, 1% June 25th, 2003. So he just, he went into a cutting frenzy because he had to make up for lost time. So he got political. There's no question in my mind, in my opinion, Alan Greenspan got political towards the end of 2000, and it cost this economy. Now, when he cut rates to, to practically zero in 2000 through 2003, you and i and everyone else we had tons of equity in our house and housing prices started to boom because that was just like uh, you know just lightning hitting 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 a tree and it's that that caused the housing boom because he so cut you rates think in, so much. in retrospect he should not have cut rates as much as you're saying he should have started cutting rates in may of 2000 and then he wouldn't have had to go so deep so fast and so and, and hold them there for so long mhm
2: so then, okay, so then the housing bubble uh, bursts up in 2005, 2006, kind of like that. So you're saying he, he did not think that this was going to be a problem at the time, and then I guess uh, Bernanke took over in, in 2006, right? Uh, Bernanke took over in, in 2008.
3: No, two, 2006. 2006. Yeah, 2006, I, you're correct. Yeah, right. Yeah, he took over in 2006. And at that point, we're right in the middle of, of the beginning of the end. Uh, I wrote an article in 2006, and it's in the book, that, and what I said was, and Jordan, I got a lot of hate mail at the time, I said in 2006, by 2011, your house will be worth what it was worth in 1997 plus inflation. And the mm-hmm. hate mail poured in. Mark, you lost your mind. What are you thinking? Housing never goes down. It, has, it hasn't gone down for 200 years. You've yeah. never had a down year. Why do you think it's going to get hammered?
2: So let's and, let's bring it forward to now. So we've had the housing boom, we've had the housing bust, things seem to be coming back. What is your outlook for housing from where we
3: are now? I don't housing, unlike stocks, is regional. So there are going to be pockets that are going to do well and pockets that aren't going to do well. In twenty thirteen, my forecast was that the housing market would be very tepid. The housing market was very tepid in, in 2013. If you look at the Vanguard you know, real estate index, it was up 2.5%. To me, that's tepid. I do not like real estate. Do not. And the reason I don't like real estate is because, as we know, interest rates, last few days are down, but they've been trending upward since May of 2013. Uh, they've been trending upward. And when interest rates are trending upward, when you're starting at such a low point, where we, you know, 2 3%, every increase as a percentage, Jordan, is just big, and I know you know that. You know, you, a mortgage goes from 3% to 4%. That's 33%. Yeah. And, uh, you know, everyone in America buys the house by a, a payment, not by how much they don't even know how much they typically pay for the house. But what's it going to cost me per month? So the, every small increase in a mortgage is just a big increase in monthly payments.
2: Yeah. So are you saying we should actually go the other way? Would you go short housing? Would you uh, think it's going to go down dramatically if rates rise?
3: I would just stay away from it completely. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. I would stay away from it completely. Like I said, there are regions in in, in, in America that, you know, housing is making money. But we also have to understand that a lot of the stimulus in 2009 was directly to the states. That stimulus has been run through the system. States' budgets are getting very tight. Real estate taxes are going up. Everyone gets their their state and local taxes, and it's becoming a bigger and bigger piece of the pie in terms of your monthly payment. Years ago, people would just say, what's my principal and interest? Now they say, what's my principal interest and my taxes? It's
2: going up a lot, you bet. Yeah, the
3: tax piece is a bigger piece of the pie. Yes. All
2: right, we have to take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Mark Grimaldi. Uh, He's the author of The Money Compass where your money went and how to get it back. And he's also the author of uh, the ongoing newsletter called Sector Navigator. His website is GrimaldiEconomics.com. We'll be back after this.
4: Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now, toll free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait, they just go for it. Is your business model robust enough? In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
1: You've been listening to The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour, Mark Grimaldi, is author of the new book called The Money Compass, Where Your Money Went and How to Get It Back. And he also runs a newsletter called The Sector Navigator Newsletter. Uh, his website, GrimaldiEconomics.com. Welcome back to the show, Mark. Thanks, Jordan. So in Having your book, a you, have a section, you have a uh, section on credit cards and how that kind of got out of whack. So tell me a little bit of what happened with credit cards and what's happening today with credit cards and how that's affecting the economy.
3: Well, one thing that I usually say about credit cards that a lot of people find uh, to be amazing that we live in a country right now where people where the amount of money that the average household spends on credit card interest per year is higher than what they spend in federal income taxes. Think about that for a second. Credit cards have become a big problem. We've had credit card reform, and the reform basically what it did is dry up the credit for those who needed it the most. We know interest rates are low and there's some good bargains out there in credit cards. Uh, Typically, it's better to to buy things with cash, as most people know, than to use credit cards. But the fixes aren't fixing the problem because the, the problem is we still have, and, and not to harp on the other, but we still have such a weak job market that people need jobs to pay their credit card bills. And all the reforms that they put into the credit card industry since the 2008, it really hasn't made a difference in anyone's lives. Uh, what, what has made a difference is them keeping interest rates as low as possible, that's the best thing you can do for the credit card uh, holders, but w- but like I said, right now the average household pays more in credit card interest than they do in uh, federal income taxes, which is a problem. So
2: lately credit card debt has been rising again. Do you think we're starting a new cycle of increasing credit card debt because it has been going down for a few years?
3: I do think we're starting that new cycle, and uh, that's because the av- the mean income in the country has gone down since, uh, since 2008. And water. I have an expression: water finds its own level. And that bill, when the bills come in at the end of the month, Jordan, you know, and you want to keep your refrigerator going, you want to keep your kids fed, but you only, get, but you, you only have to pay the minimum on your credit card. You, that's what you're going to do. Uh, that's where the cash is going to go. So we, we do need higher paying jobs. It's amazing how that'll fix a lot of problems. But I, yes, I agree with you that it is becoming a problem again, and uh, it, it may up may end up being a bigger disaster than it was in 2008.
2: What are the investment implications of that as far as credit cards? Is this good for banks, going to make more money on it, or is it the retail economy? How how do you play this as an investor?
3: As an investor, banks would love for interest rates to go up, but I I would be very cautious in, in terms of the type of bank that you invest in because at this point, they also know that defaults are going to start increasing and late payments are going to increase. And as much as they tried to revamp late payment penalties, which I give the government credit for, because the late payment penalties were putting people in interest rates in real dollars you know at hundreds and hundreds of percent, so they did revamp that, and that 's going to help millions of card holders. but banks are now bracing for and this is another reason they have so much money on on their balance sheet they 're bracing for a mass amount of defaults on credit cards.
2: Another area you talk about are so-called target date funds. These are funds typically within a 401k where you have a specific date in the future where the money is going to be maturing. So you you have some problems with target date funds. What is your outlook on what's been happening with them and, and where things are going in the future with target date funds?
3: In the newsletter, we have four cardinal rules. One of the cardinal rules is never invest in a target date fund period. The reason being is because what a target date fund is you pick a date that's close to your retirement. Let's say you were going to retire in 2015, you know, 15, which is next year. If you look at the current holdings of a target date fund in 2015, you would expect that fund to be 70, 80, 85% out of the stock market because it's designed for somebody who's going to retire in, in next year. The problem is most of these funds are what they call funds of funds. So not to pick on Fidelity, but I do in the book, so why not pick on them here? You know, you have a Fidelity Target Day Fund of 2015. Most of the holdings are other Fidelity funds. So the fund manager is in a situation where, all, okay, if, if I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do, I have to hurt my own firm to do that. And these companies are not doing that. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. In 2008, when the markets lost a ton of money, all the retirement funds dated 2010 got hit just as hard. Now, think about it. If I'm managing money 2015, and you're going to retire, Jordan, in 2015, with the markets close to an all-time high, because they were at an all-time high at the end of last year, this year, wouldn't you think this would be a great time to start taking risk off the table? We have an institu- so. but they're not I'm doing me- it. Yeah. so I mean,
2: aren't there trustees overseeing these targeted funds that make sure that they're doing what they say they're going
3: to be doing? The thing is, if you read the prospectus, the sp- prospectus doesn't specifically say, you know, this many years out, you have to reduce it by this holding. This many years out, you have to reduce it by that holding. So the, this prospectus is a very generic. It doesn't give you criteria what you need to do.
1: I, see. So you, okay.
3: you, I understand about the trustees, but you can't, I, I can't fault them. Yeah. Uh, now, you
2: also have a chapter about 401ks and problems with that. What, what is the problem with 401ks? We've got over $3 trillion in them now. This has been the way a lot of people are saving. What, what's wrong with 401ks?
3: Well, let me be clear. There's nothing wrong with a 401k. However, you need to understand what it is. What a 401k is, it's your money. Typically, unless you have an employer that's matching dollars, if you don't, if you don't have any matching dollars and you're putting money into a 401k, that is your money. Period. It's money that you've been been paid that you haven't paid taxes on. And it grows tax-deferred. When it comes out, it comes out as if wages if you earned it. The problem is most employers nowadays don't put any matching money into that. So you put this money in, you get your tax deduction. And everyone's been brainwashed to say, well, don't pay the taxes now, pay it later when you're in 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 a lower tax bracket. Jordan, you and I both know that that day never comes. It never comes when you're in a lower tax bracket. So basically what people are doing is they're taking income, deferring the income taxes on that income to when they need every dollar that they can get, as opposed to paying the taxes when their income is the highest, where they can afford to pay the taxes, to paying the taxes in retirement where they, where they need every penny. And with a $17 trillion debt, which I always tell my readers all that number is, is taxes we haven't paid yet, period. So you're deferring taxes from today to sometime in the future on a hope you're going to be in a lower tax bracket, which very few people are, in an environment where in the macroeconomic conditions, taxes are only going to go up, they're not going to go down. But the big kicker, Jordan, is very simple. If you die with that 401k, your spouse or beneficiary, they get taxed as if it was income to them. Yeah, they may be able to spread the taxes out. If you took that same money and just invested it in tax-efficient mutual funds, and just and just kept running that money out, God forbid something happens to you, you pass away, you get a step-up basis. I talk about this in the chapter. Your beneficiary, your loved ones, get a check tax-free. And w- one of the few things that the IRS gives us is the step-up in basis. Whereas if you die, the, the, base, the, the, the gain that you achieved on that investment disappears. If you pass it at death, and again, I'm not a CPA, everyone should talk to their CPA, but if you have a, a highly appreciated asset and you pass it at death, you get a step-up in basis, meaning their basis is what you give it to them at. Meaning but that's not great. true with
2: 401Ks, you're saying?
3: It is not true of 401Ks because every penny that comes out of a 401K is taxed as income because it's wages you haven't paid taxes on yet. Yeah. So the one so loophole the IRS gives us, you wipe away by using a 401k. You,
2: you have other reasons why you want to invest in after-tax accounts instead of a pre-tax account like a 401k. What are some of those reasons?
3: Number one, if you do need the money during, during your working years, you don't have to go through all the hoops and all the, all the, all the uh, taxes and gyrations to pull your money out of a 401k. You know, I'm 51 years old. If I if I needed money out of my 401k right now, it's going to be extremely expensive to touch. But if I had money in after-tax money, and I needed it, all I do is pay a capital gain, which we both know is a lower tax bracket than income, and I pay no penalty to the IRS. So you're getting more investment choices, you're getting the step-up basis, and you get liquidity without any penalties. So... uh I'm not a big fan of 401Ks, and I feel like I'm on a mission to get the word out that, you know what, if you have a 401K where your employer is matching double digits, fine, take the free money. But if your employer is not matching, there are much better ways to invest your money, and it's uh, has nothing uh, to do with uh, returns. It has everything to do with taxes.
2: And you're saying the trends are for fewer employers to be matching, not more. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Yeah.
3: Yes. Very, very few firms at this point are doing a matching.
2: Yeah. Uh, You also say with an after-tax account, you get to choose exactly what you want to sell. You can do, pick exactly what it is to create gains or losses, Where you cannot do that with a 401k.
3: Yeah, that's a great point. With a 401k, whatever dollar comes out, the IRS looks at that dollar exactly the same. It's taxed as income. With an after-tax account, you could say, well, let me sell this. Actually, this one I could even sell at a loss, or this one at a much smaller gain. You could manage your taxes due, unlike a 401k where it's just income to you
2: makes a big difference, yes.
3: yes. All right. Th- then you have a, a whole
2: chapter on uh, ETFs, exchange-traded funds. We're, we're, we're about two minutes before the break, but what is your basic idea why you like uh, to use ETFs?
3: In a nutshell, the reason I like ETFs is because you could slice it down to a specific sector of the economy and not carry all the junk to get to that. I find too many clients that come to us and say, I want to invest in this fund because it owns Facebook or Twitter, but what about all the other stuff it owns? Or oh, I want to invest in a specific sector in this particular fund. And you know what? That's perfectly logical. When they say that to me, it's a logical thing. But you know what? You, you like this fund because, you know, 10% of its holdings. The other 90 you may not like, so why not just pull out that 10% and invest in an ETF that invests in that particular sector? It just makes total sense to me. I'm a big fan of ETFs.
2: And are the fees, the management fees, are lower on ETFs than they are on mutual funds?
3: Uh, in general, because, again, there's, there's not management going on. Uh, there, there, there is talk about maybe having managed ETFs, but at this point there's no management going on. So the, the fees in the ETF are extremely, extremely low. And there's a lot of uh, institutions out there that will even, even let you buy ETFs without any trading cost.
2: There has been a profusion of ETFs. A lot of them don't make it because they just don't attract enough assets. Do you want to stay in just the larger, uh, more publicly uh, liquid kinds of
3: ETFs? Yes. Try to stay with the name brands. Exactly. ProShares are good. iShares are good. BlackRock is, you know, good. Uh, Exactly. Because there's a lot of ETFs that just don't have the volume, and they may not not be around.
2: Very good. All right. We're going to take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour, Mark Grimaldi, is author of The Money Compass, Where Your Money Went and How to Get It Back. He's also the author of a newsletter called the Sector Navigator Newsletter. His website, GrimaldiEconomics.com. We'll
4: be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
1: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour, Mark Grimaldi, is the author of The Money Compass, Where Your Money Went and How to Get It Back. His newsletter is called The Sector Navigator Newsletter. It has a very good track record and his website grmaldi-economics.com. Welcome back to the show, Mark. Thanks, Jordan. So you have a whole chapter on what you call the collapsing education system. Describe that briefly and what is the impact of that on the economy?
3: Well, the impact is, is, is unfortunately going to be uh, catastrophic to the economy because we all know education is the cornerstone to any strong uh, economic system, regardless of the country out there. And w- what we need to do is, is look at the education system and make sure that we're covering all the proper bases in terms of uh, how our young ones are being educated. And we also need to make sure that they have access to higher quality education.
2: Uh, So there's an awful lot of talk about that, the Common Core curriculum and all these parents are always complaining about how they're pushing the kids too hard. You don't think that's working then?
3: I don't think it's working because I think at this point part of the problem is that teachers are spending way too much time parenting the children also. Uh, it, it, there is a responsibility of the household to deliver a child to the school who's ready to learn and eager to learn, and a, every minute that we spend parenting a, a child in school, we're not educating them. So the the problems are mass and societal, uh, and but they can all be fixed with 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 the right leadership and the right in uh, the in the right uh, uh, system.
2: So I'm going to make you education commissioner here. So what would you do? to improve education briefly
3: number one i would make sure that every teacher every minute they walk in the classroom they're teaching and not parenting kids need to be parented at home and they need to be educated in the classroom and not vice versa every minute a teacher spends parenting they are not educating that's what i think that's exactly what we need to do okay and and that's free of charge that doesn't cost (laughs) taxpayers a penny
2: all right, let's move on. You have a chapter of what you call Staying Poor in America. Why is there so much poverty and what can be done to turn around poverty? We just had the 50th anniversary of the war on poverty with Lyndon Johnson, and some people think it's been assessed, some think people it hasn't. What is your view on that?
3: Well, it's something that I'm actually considering and uh, writing about in the next book in detail, but my problem with it, or my concern, not a problem, my concern is that the, right now the gap between living at home and working is too small. I, I was on food stamps when I was a kid. I have a disabled father. I understand the value of all that. Uh, but at this point, what you're paid to stay home is X. And the bare minimum job is only paying X plus. The gap is too small. We need to make the gap bigger. Maybe that's raising minimum wage. Maybe that's cutting benefits. We have to get that gap to be big enough for people to want to make the leap. They're not making the leap, and you can't blame them. I wouldn't make the leap. It just doesn't make sense.
2: You're so, saying the incentives are not enough for them to leave the home to, because if they have to pay for child care or other things, they end up behind
3: by working, actually. Correct, and, and you and I would do the same thing. We would stay home.
2: So, so are you a big believer in raising the minimum wage? I mean, President Obama's talking about raising it to over $10 from 7 and a quarter now.
3: I am a big believer in that uh, because again, it would increase that delta to make people want to make the leap and and yeah. and to get off you know government assistance and and to get a nice high quality paying job, you you need to have that gap be big enough for them to put in the effort to make the jump.
2: Then you have a chapter on the federal debt bomb, as you call it, uh, holding your breath or at least try, Uh So what what is the situation? We're up to seventeen trillion in debt. Um, what's wrong with that? Why can't we go to $50 billion? What's the difference?
3: Well, the difference is every time we print a dollar, it makes that dollar worth less. And what's crazy is right now, the inflation isn't there, so what everyone's worried about isn't happening. But the debt is not a problem, Jordan, until the day it becomes a problem. But I have mixed feelings on this, because part of me feels the $17 trillion, you know, is going to be the end-all. Another part of me feels like it's not $17 trillion because we bought back 4 trillion so it's really 13 trillion. That 4 trillion that we bought back and sitting in the treasury do you think we're ever going to reissue it? Do you think we do you think we have to pay interest on it? So is it really 17 trillion? I I think the smart people the reason there's no inflation is because the smart people in the world know that America is not 17 trillion in debt.
2: Because well, supposedly the Fed talks about unwinding its balance sheet. They've taken on 4 trillion, but they talk about selling this back eventually and unwinding all of the
3: quantitative easing that they've done. You don't think they're going to do that? I would be shocked, completely shocked, if they reissued that $4 trillion. I, I wrote an article about, you know, a default in a different name. Some, they will do some kind of accounting trick, something where I would be shocked if one penny of that $4 trillion ever gets reissued. I just don't see it happening because there's no incentive to do it. In, in Washington... There's not enough courage to do it. They'll do the easiest thing, and the easiest thing they'll, is to say, "What four trillion? I don't remember that. Do you remember that? That never happened."
2: So, I mean, the budget deficit has come down from about one and a half trillion to five hundred billion or so. So, it's certainly gone the right direction. Do you think that's we're going to continue to make progress on the budget deficit that way?
3: I do, and uh, the administration should be commended for that. They have cut the deficit tremendously, and that is a very, very good thing. I think, and, ha- and I think that trend will continue.
2: And how about around the world? Are you concerned about debt in Argentina and uh, Brazil and Greece and all these other places that have huge amounts of debts? Is that a, a debt bomb as well?
3: No, and the reason being is because one of the reasons our economy was so good in 2013 is because we looked good by comparison. My biggest concern is we wake up and the rest of the world figures out their problems and then we're the, and we're the bad house in the neighborhood. That's my biggest concern. I have no problem looking good by comparison. So Mm -hmm. I have no concern about that. One of your last chapters in the book is
2: called Navigating the 2014 Recession. So nobody says we're going to have a recession now. Why are we going to have a recession this year? We're
3: going to have a recession this year because the last two unemployment numbers came in very, very weak. And the jobs that we're creating are part-time jobs. And at this point, we're in a situation where interest rates are probably trending upward, uh, the uh, credit card balances on everyone 's account is growing the the jobs are part time jobs that we're creating. Obamacare has a hidden tax in it that will absolutely destroy people and what that tax is and what you think it is what that tax is, what scares me is the the uh, the deductible on these policies. Some of these policies have three, four five thousand dollars deductibles that 's money that you just have to pay. The, the, people are not going to have money to pay these deductibles i, I just don 't see the economy growing i mean we're w- pumping billions of dollars every month into the economy. Interest rates are near an all time low the 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 discount rate is an all time low and we 're growing at two percent we haven't we haven 't recovered you show you get you, you, you We stopped the quantitative easing and we put the prime rate interest rate back at five or six percent Jordan then I'll know what the economy's all about. Right now it's still on stimulus, and it's growing by 2%. So
2: you're saying that the money in Obamacare is, that people are going to have to pay for health care because their deductibles are so much higher, is money that's taken out of other kinds of spending they would have been doing in the past.
3: Or to find its own level. People can't make this money up. Unlike the government, people can't print their own money. It's going to have Mm -hmm. to come from something else. And typically what that something else is, is discretionary spending.
2: So other than follow your newsletter, what is the way to profit from the 2014 recession?
3: Put your money where the government can't affect it negatively. If 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 we think we have a lot of debt, inflation will come. I know right now people are saying we'll never have inflation again. Prepare yourself for inflation. That's the number one rule right now is prepare yourself for inflation because when it comes, it's going to come hard, and you need to be prepared for it.
2: But having a recession seems like the, the last thing about inflation. When you have a recession, things slow down. You don't you have deflation, not inflation.
3: The problem is that with, with the GDP and the debt are over 100%, 105%, they're going to work counterintuitive, meaning we are going to have a recession because we stop printing money, but all the money we printed in the past is still out there, and that will be recessionary. And we could actually end up maybe with stagflation. I I'd rather have a year recession than one month of stagflation. I see. Very good.
2: <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> well, very good. Well, my guest this hour has been Mark Grimaldi. His new book is called The Money Compass, um, where, where Your Money Went and How to Get It Back. He has a newsletter called The Sector Navigator, which has a very good long-term track record. Uh, you can find out more about him at his website, which is GrimaldiEconomics.com. Thanks so much, Mark. We've really had a good time on The Money Answer Show. Thank you, John.
3: Thanks for being a true gentleman.
1: Thank you, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.